0: Hey, thank you so much for joining us for our Red Hills Church podcast today. Along with the message, we wanna remind you that we have a Spotify playlist. If you would like to engage in worship, you can do so by clicking on the link and going over to our Spotify playlist. We also believe that giving is an extension of our worship. So if you'd like to give today, you can go over to the website, click on the give link, and you can continue in worship in that way. Also, if you're new with us, make sure you fill out a connect card. We'd love to have a conversation with you, let you know anything that you might have questions about, or just say thank you for joining us for, our, for your first time. Today, let's go ahead and jump into our message with Pastor Lane as he continues in the series Identity, Belonging, and Purpose. All right. Good morning, everyone. Awesome. Well, can we start with a little bit of gratitude this morning? Why don't you just close your eyes? If you're anything like me, I woke up this morning and I had my checklists, I had my duties, I had the things in the world that need to be fixed and corrected and redeemed, and sometimes I forget that there's a lot, uh, there's a quote, for as much evil and pain as there is in the world, there is just as much inexplicable goodness and kindness. So let's remember God's goodness just for a moment before we begin. Jesus, we just thank you so much for a beautiful day, for the sunshine, for all the good things that you give to us. May we never lose the gratitude in our hearts. We love you. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, last week, uh, by the way, I'm Lane, if we haven't met yet. New lead pastor here. I'm really, really glad to be here. Last week, we started a new series, our first series together called Exploring Our Identity. Belonging and purpose and last week we specifically took some time to talk about our identity We looked we looked at the creation story as well as the baptism of Jesus And we remembered that at the center uh, of a person's identity the center of gravity for a person's identity is what? Beloved right that is the center of a person's identity when when we look at a person what at the middle of their lives is is the the love approval and forgiveness of God And when we can accept that belovedness in people, we can begin to invite the peace of God to navigate the other facets of our identity. And when we acknowledge that belovedness in others, we can learn to love them the way that Jesus does. So the question of last week was, Who are we? And the answer is, We are the beloved of God. And this week, we are wrestling with the question of belonging where do we belong, and who do we welcome? Well, since we establish that we are the beloved of God, we can start there. Where do we belong? We belong with God, and therefore with his people. All right, great work. Everyone, we'll see you next week. No, okay. Um, Answering the question of where we belong is pretty straightforward, right, when we acknowledge our identity. If we embrace that we're the beloved of God, we always have our belonging with him, we always have our belonging with his people. It gets more difficult when we are compelled To acknowledge the belovedness in others and invite others to sit at the table, right? That's when it gets a little more complicated. Inclusivity can be pretty inconvenient, sometimes downright annoying, which is why most of the time it's easier to say that inclusivity is a good thing, but it's a different thing altogether to actually live it out, isn't it? Dr. Gregory Coles, he wrote a book on belonging called No Longer Strangers, and he said this. We all want to be accepted and welcomed and taken in, even especially when we are at our very worst. But almost nobody wants to do the accepting and welcoming and taking in. Almost nobody wants to go around finding the most unpleasant, most undeserving people available, declaring, I choose you. You belong with me now. Jesus is a pretty clever guy, I think, and he anticipated human beings' resistance to extending the same kindness to others as Jesus does to us, especially when it comes to religious people like the Pharisees, right? In Luke chapter 15, he tells a series of parables about the nature of belonging, forgiveness, and acceptance. One of the most popular ones is the parable of the two sons. We see this parable um, as Jesus talks about it to the Pharisees, we realize that he's actually talking about them. He's talking to them. He says there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after this, the younger son got together all he had and set out for a distant country. And there, he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that country, and he began to be in need. So he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. After he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, yet here I am starving to death? I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went back to his father. But while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father called to his servants and said, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his, on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called to one of the servants and asked what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But the brother replied, All these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property on prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father replied, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, was lost, and is found. When we fail to welcome others the way that Jesus does, I think we find ourselves standing outside of the house. And this is a lonely, bitter an angry place, isn't it? The truth is, Jesus instructs his followers to love everyone, literally everyone, including our enemies. During the Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. He doesn't even give us an out when it comes to people who are actively against us, let alone people who are just annoying or offend us, right? See, it's almost easy to say, like, yeah, I love everybody, but it gets harder when those everybodies get more specific, right? Like maybe I'd like to think that I love everyone, but maybe I have a hard time with that one coworker, or that neighbor down the street or that politician on the news, that person that lives in a way that offends me, that person who votes differently than I do. Sometimes when we say we love everyone, what we really mean is, well, I don't hate anyone. But is that what Jesus calls us to? Notice the command is not tolerate your enemies. (laughs) Put up with those who persecute you. No, Jesus says to bless them, to love them. Loving and blessing, these are not passive qualities. These are active. True love embodied in Jesus lays down his life for the very people who killed him. Jesus, as he did with this parable we just heard, He's really good at confronting religion with radical love, isn't he? I can get really religious. I have, I have that tendency. I like to follow the rules. Jesus likes to kill that in me the more that I follow him. And our capacity to love anyone is dependent upon our willingness to love anyone. Our capacity to love everyone is dependent upon our willingness to love anyone. So how do we learn to do this well? How do we begin to welcome people into belonging? I want us to look at a story found in the book of Acts about a man named Philip and then another man referred to only as the Ethiopian. This is in Acts chapter 8 verse 26. Philip is nicknamed Philip the Evangelist. He's one of the first deacons in the church of Jerusalem and many people believe he was actually actively involved in Jesus' ministry before his death and resurrection. So we're going to start in verse 26 chapter 8. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of their entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning home seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, do you understand what you are reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of scripture he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to slaughter and like a lamb silent before his shearer so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked him, about whom, may I ask, does the prophet say this about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began to speak and started with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water, what is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. Okay. <laughs> the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he was passing through the region, he proclaim, proclaiming the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All right, let's unpack the story a little bit. First, I want us to take a look at the listening posture of Philip. Right? So an angel of the Lord comes to Philip. I've only had that happen maybe a handful of times. But when this angel comes to Philip, (laughs) he tells him, go stand on this desert road in the wilderness from Jerusalem to Gaza. Go stand in the middle of nowhere by a road. Can you do that? Because God has work for you there. He didn't even question it. Philip asks zero questions, offers zero points of concern, zero hesitation, with almost no information or context. Philip is like, sure, I'll go stand by that road. He was expecting that God would have work for him. He was attentive to the leading of God. At this juncture in the story, I think it's important to examine our own hearts. Are we attentive to the leading of God in our lives? Are we listening, like really listening? The ancient Jews and devout Jews today, they have this prayer. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And Jesus comes along later and says, and love your neighbor as yourself. The word Shema is translated here, hear, O Israel. But more accurately, this word here means listen and obey. It's the two words at the same time, the two ideas. They were not meant to be divorced from one another. To listen was to obey. I think Philip grasped this in his soul. To receive a word from the Lord from him was not something to be negotiated. It was something to be obeyed. And although I do believe God can handle all the questions that we have for him, we have to at least admire how he was so ready to jump in with both feet. Zero context. When I read this, I have to wonder, am I attentive to what the Spirit of God is doing in and around me in the same way? Do we find ourselves in a place where we're ready to follow the leading of God's Spirit? Are we awake to what he's doing around us? Are we mindful of ourselves in this space? There's an author I've come to really admire. Her name's Dr. Amy Oden, and she wrote a book on Christian mindfulness, and she writes this. In a world where so many people feel that they are sleepwalking through their lives, Jesus' call to be awake resonates with the vague awareness of missing out on our own lives. The Spirit can be speaking into our lives, God can be moving in us, and we will miss it entirely because we are lost in mental machinations. In a dominant culture that in my personal experience is a little defensive and polarized and preoccupied, self-absorbed, I think that it's crucial that we, as a body of Christ, learn how to listen. Not so that we can react or defend but so that the people of, of this world and our God can be heard and understood. Our next series is going to be in the book of James, and there's this famous passage out of there that says, we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Have you heard a phrase more opposite to our culture right now? So we're called to listen and obey, to love God and to love people. I don't think it's an accident that we are commanded to listen and to love in the same breath. David Augsburger said this. He said, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Being a good listener is an integral facet of being a loving person, right? Dr. Kara Powell, who's the academic who inspired this series, she's done a lot of work with youth at Fuller Theological Seminary. And she brought up this big point of, 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 of issues in our youth ministries today. And she said, I was at a conference, and she said, the problem is that we are a- answering questions that people aren't asking. Ooh. <laughs> How do we get better at asking, or answering those questions? Well, we have to get better at listening. We have to know what questions they're asking. Notice, the interaction between Philip and the Ethiopian is read in less than three minutes. But when you look at the geography of this story, how long it would have taken them to come upon some water in their route, it's likely that they spent the better part of a day together. Philip acted as a guide, right? But in order to guide this man through the scriptures, he needed to know what questions he had about what he was reading. Is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? I think there's a lesson in here for us when it comes to how we talk about our faith. Not everyone is going to have the same questions about everything. So we can't just have religious platitudes that we throw out to satisfy people. I think it's possible to get even defensive at questions, right? We take them as a threat, and we fail to hear someone's longing, someone's story behind the question. If we want to love people well, we need to be willing to listen well so that we can discern how to love them well. Because not everyone's going to be needed to love the same way, right? All right, let's talk about the Ethiopian. There's a lot we can observe about him by the details in the story. He's obviously from Ethiopia, which is a country in Africa. He is likely a person of great status in direct service of the queen. He's physically a eunuch, which means that he's been castrated. If you don't know what castration is, just discreetly ask the person next to you. (laughs) When someone in this culture was castrated, it could have been forced upon him or likely it was something that he would have chosen at an early age to, to, to do in service of his country. It would have been communicated that his existence would be relegated to the service of the queen, tending to the nation's most important responsibilities. And although he would have access to wealth and power, he was in a chariot, right? He would be dehumanized and respected all in one fell swoop. Very confusing. But what's fascinating about this man is that he's on his way from worshiping back from worshiping in Jerusalem. This could mean a few things. One, he could be part of the Hebrew diaspora that was spread about the region. He could have been a Jewish convert. Or he could have been on his own personal journey of faith. Either way, he would have been denied the right to worship at the temple. He would have been regarded as someone who had been mutilated and therefore outside the guidelines for ritual purity. So, he's barred from worship at the temple... He's barred from much of the spiritual life of the Jews. He represented the most profound shame a Hebrew man could carry at the time, the inability to produce children. In this culture, this would have been a huge burden of shame. Imagine having something that made you different from everyone else, and that be the thing that excluded you from community, that be the thing, that kept you from belonging. How many people do we know who carry that kind of shame? Who feel that even if they came to church that they wouldn't really be welcome. Maybe people will be nice, maybe people will be tolerant, but will I really be welcome? Will I be accepted? I think we have to ask ourselves, if there are people in our lives who are hurting and lost and questioning, searching, and I feel hesitant to invite them into the life of my church, why is that? If the church is truly meant to be a place of healing and redemption, a place where anyone can experience the grace of Jesus for themselves, why do some feel as if they have no place here? Now, I'm not talking about Red Hills. I'm still getting to know you guys, and from what I understand, you guys are very loving and kind. But the church at large, I think, is struggling with this question. Why is there huge portions of our population that don't feel like it's okay to not be okay. It's easy for us to look back on the religious elite and the Pharisees and be like, oh, thank Jesus we're not like them, and forget that we have a tendency to be just like them. Notice the passage that the Ethiopian was reading. He was reading about the prophecy of the suffering man, Does the prophet write about himself or someone else? And Philip got to share the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, was a man acquainted with pain and humiliation. He was a man who was also denied justice. It says, who can describe his generation? Another way to to say this is, who can speak of his descendants? Imagine how that line would feel, how that would resonate with a eunuch who is incapable of producing children himself. He's able to see himself In the suffering Messiah. Here's something else amazing. So he's reading out of chapter 57 when Philip encounters him. Which means he had just read chapter 56. I'm going to read you a portion out of chapter 56. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Wow. He had just read that. The Ethiopian is seeing the scriptures describe him. A foreigner and a eunuch. The prophecy is telling him, don't say that just because you can't have kids that you can't be a part of my family. Don't think that. I'm going to give you a name and a heritage that is beyond biological children because my name endures forever. This promise is reaching out from this prophecy and grabbing the eunuch by the heart. Imagine what good news this is to him. A man that had probably experienced humiliation and exclusion from every place of worship that he visited. He learned that day that the gospel was for everyone, even him. And maybe his questions didn't have so much to do with the nature of Christ's miracles or some lofty theological thing. Maybe his questions had more to do with whether or not someone like him had a place in the family of God. He says, What can prevent me from being baptized? Are we listening? Listening has so much to do with empathy, doesn't it? It's hard for me to love someone if I don't have empathy, and it's hard for me to have empathy for someone if I don't know their story. A wise person once said that empathy is not about imagining yourself in someone else's shoes. It's about hearing what it's like to be in their shoes and believing them. I used to have this very weird but very cool job. Fun fact, Breanne Hansen actually had this job years ago but I worked for a Christian nonprofit organization called First Image. They run the Pregnancy Resource Centers of Greater Portland. I was the director of the Sexual Integrity Program, which means that I went around to public high schools all over the area, uh, talking to health classes about things like sexual abuse and sex trafficking and pornography, you know, all the light stuff. And because of this, the students often referred to me as the sex man, (laughs) which... (laughs) Like, in the classroom is, like, a harmless joke, but, like, in public. I remember I walked into an old spaghetti factory one time with my family, and a former student uh, recognized me, the hostess, and shouted in front of a very full waiting area, hey, you're the sex man. (laughs) And I said, hey, shut up. (laughs) You're going to get me arrested on a Tuesday night. You need to laugh in that job, because it can get pretty heavy. (laughs) When I was in this role, I encountered a lot of people with very hard stories, you can imagine. I was at a high school one day speaking to a health class, and there was this freshman in the midst of transitioning from identifying as a female to identifying as a male. And during the class, they raised their hand to share their experience with sexual abuse. And I interrupted them because I could tell that they were beginning to feel uncomfortable. Uh, Everyone else was too. So I I thanked them for being vulnerable and, and brave, and I asked them if they could talk to me after class. So after the class was over, I sat and I listened as they gave me an almost unbelievable history of abuse. And my young heart broke in new ways that day. More than anything... What I wanted to do was wrap my arms around this young child and tell them that Jesus loved them more ferociously than they could possibly imagine. But I was on the clock, and talking about Jesus in the context of the classroom could have gotten our program uninvited to the school. So after the conversation was over, I walked to my car, I got in, I locked the door, and I began to weep. And I remember my prayer that day distinctly. I said this, I said, God, your kingdom better be doing what it's supposed to be doing. I can only hope that there were Jesus followers out there who had the heart of Philip, who were willing to reveal the goodness of God's love for that young person, despite whatever sensibilities they had that were being offended. Because, for example, when we hear the word transgender, Right? We're, we're kind of conditioned by our popular media to immediately jump to debate right, around public policy, around school curriculum, around theology, morality, agenda. But how many human beings get bypassed? How many stories don't get heard because we're too busy debating about them to actually see them? Back to our talk about identity last week, do we see the word beloved at the center of that person? Or do we see the word politics? Do we see the word agenda? Are we listening? Are we addressing the questions that people are actually asking? Notice that in the dialogue between Philip and the Ethiopian, it's really a dialogue. Ethiopian, the Ethiopian who has already per- been pursuing God, already been pursuing Jesus in this Old Testament prophecy without even knowing it. And I think people in our world are often in pursuit of Jesus without even realizing it. They're looking for something that they don't even know they can have in Jesus. Are we attentive and awake to those opportunities? Are we seeing people? I think God sent Philip to this man because this is exactly the kind of thing Jesus was doing when he walked the earth. He, was, he wasn't looking for reasons to keep people out, right? He was going out of his way. He was inconveniencing himself to be with whom society deemed to be the lonely, the poor, the sick, the pariahs. People who felt that who they were disqualified them from coming into the presence of God, so he was bringing the presence of God to them. That's Jesus, gifting people with human dignity. The Jesus we see in the scriptures is far more concerned with things like mercy and freedom than he is with things with like religion and rules. I think Jesus would have us embark on a journey as a church to move from identifying as gatekeepers to guides. I think we can tend to think of ourselves as gatekeepers to the kingdom rather than guides to it. Because to be a guide simply implies that I've been there before, that someone has once showed me how to get there, someone who has been guided once themselves. And whether you've been following Jesus for 50 years or 50 minutes, we still have a lot to learn about the kingdom, don't we? We are not commissioned by Jesus to be gatekeepers to the kingdom of heaven. We are commissioned to be ambassadors of it, to be guides to it. Even if a person offends my cultural or social or moral sensibilities, am I not compelled to extend the same love that was extended to me? Am I, I am not the judge of the living of the dead. That job's been taken. <laughs> my job is that I am a bearer of good news. I have to ask, do we find ourselves in a place where we're more concerned about our religious sensibilities than we are about extending the love and mercy of God? Are we willing to leave the 99 and go after the 1? I think sometimes we can find ourselves getting into a backwards way of thinking about this faith, of making it about who's in and who's out. We become gatekeepers. We tend to think about the kingdom of God like this this picture here. If you choose to believe the right things and practice the right behavior, then you can belong. Then you can be accepted. If you clean up your life to look like mine, if you can make yourself look like a good Christian, then you've proven that you belong here with us. You're in. But until you check the right boxes and say the right prayer, you're out. Is this where we see the heart of Jesus? Is this where we see the idea that we leave the 99 to find the one? Is this the model where we see a suffering Messiah who enters into our pain, into our shame, to resurrect us into new life? Is this what we see in Jesus? I don't think this is how Jesus works. I think Jesus enters into the lives of the forgotten and the unseen, and he invites us to follow him. And as we spend time with this loving Savior, we begin to change. We begin to be transformed. Any of you who love Jesus in this room... It was after you met him that your lives changed, right? I think that this next picture is a much closer image of what following Jesus looks like. So many people doing and believing so many different things. Some really close to what is right belief and right behavior and others really far away. But our proximity to religion is far less important than our orientation of our lives towards Jesus. Because I can subscribe to the most correct beliefs and practices and fail to notice when Jesus walks into the room. Like the Pharisees. I can become so obsessed with following the rules that I've forgotten about how to give and receive grace. Like the brother in the parable that we just read. I stubbornly stand outside the house, resentful. Because I'm doing the right thing. Now listen, this does not mean... Hear me, this does not mean that right beliefs and right behaviors are unimportant. I am not saying that. Belief is very important. What one believes about reality tends to shape how you exist in it, right? Following Jesus doesn't really make sense if you don't believe he is who he says he is. But there are all sorts of beliefs that get ironed out and reworked as we mature in Christ, right? How many of you have ever changed your mind about something big, after you started following Jesus? I'm actually asking. (laughs) I hope so. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, and we invite him to actually be who he wants to be in our lives, he changes everything. Everything. I'm also not suggesting that our behavior doesn't change when we're introduced to Jesus, because it should. I loved hearing Luis Palau speak. He used to say, Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Obviously, there is an invitation from Jesus to make him the Lord of our lives and therefore radically change and transform our beliefs and behaviors. There is wisdom and love in the boundaries that Jesus sets for us. But he's in the business of transforming us into his likeness. Sometimes I think we'd like it better if he transformed people into our likeness. But that's not what he does. Maybe we shouldn't be so focused on changing people. Maybe we should trust Jesus to do that and the Holy Spirit. Maybe instead of guarding our tradition and our comforts out of insecurity that it might all go away, we should be running towards the least likely and the least sensible people and extending the love and mercy of God. Should we be looking for excuses not to extend mercy? Or like Philip, should we be hungry and ready for every opportunity to share the love of God? Because the disciples got a lot of stuff wrong before they started following Jesus, right? And then they got a lot of stuff wrong while they were still following Jesus. And then after he ascended, they still started to bicker and got stuff wrong after he was ascended, right? Transformation is not a prerequisite to being a follower of Jesus. Transformation is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Back to the passage. So they come upon some water in the desert, and you can almost hear the hopeful anticipation in his voice, right? What can keep me? What can prevent me from being baptized? I've been denied my whole life. I've been told why I don't fit, why I'm different. Lay it on me. What do I have to do to be a part of this family? What will keep me from the good news this time? And Philip, without saying a word, communicates absolutely nothing. I will baptize you right here, right now, because the gospel of Jesus is for everyone, including you. Are we listening? Are we willing and ready to extend the gospel to anyone? Our world is wrestling with a lot of big questions right now. A lot of big ones. Do they see in us a community where they can belong before they believe correctly? Or behave correctly? Do they see room for themselves in the story that we're telling about Jesus? Do they see a suffering Jesus acquainted with pain who has also been denied justice? Now speaking of a loving Savior who was denied justice, we come to communion together. I'll ask the worship team to come up as well. Jesus descended into our suffering and pain because he wanted us to be able to see ourselves in his story. Someone once told me that when you suffer, you walk on sacred ground. Ground that the Savior shares with you. He humbled himself the most righteous person, the most righteous being in the universe associated with the drunkards and the tax collectors. And he invited them into his life. And he invited you and me to be in his life too. He went to the cross and he rose from the grave so that all the sin and shame and all of that could be buried and he could resurrect into new life, inviting us into something new as well. Maybe you're in this room, and you felt convicted by the Holy Spirit. Maybe there are people in your life whom you've yet to truly listen to. Perhaps there are people outside that you need to extend love towards. Why don't we close our eyes and reflect on what Jesus might be saying to us. Hold the elements in your hand. Ask God to bring those people to your mind. Who do you need to listen to? Who do you need to extend the love and mercy of God to? Pray for him to give you opportunities to share his love with them. Or maybe you're in this room and you feel more like the Ethiopian. Maybe there's something you've been wrestling with. Maybe there's a shame that you carry that you feel disqualifies you from belonging in Christ. And perhaps what you need this morning is to hear that Jesus loves you deeply and desires for you to be with him. If that's you and you finally feel like it's time, maybe there's all sorts of details that need to be worked out, questions you still have. But you've come to a place where you are ready to confess that you need Jesus. Maybe you don't know a lot about theology, but you are ready to declare that Jesus is real, that he's alive, and you're ready to make him the Lord of your life. Prayer can be a great place to start. So, all of us, let's just take a moment and talk to Jesus. Tell him that you're ready to follow him. Acknowledge that he went to the cross, he died and he rose again so he could defeat death and sin in order to bring us into new life. Thank him for what he's done. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the elements together. If you were sitting there this morning and you told Jesus that you are ready to start following him, that you wanted to take part in his new life, I would encourage you to find someone after the service. Um, it can be one of our staff people, one of our team members, maybe a friend that you came with, and just tell them that you made that commitment. We'd love to celebrate with you. We'd love to tell you more about how you can get plugged in and where you can find community. Maybe give you a Bible. Um, otherwise, let's stand and pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that who you are changes everything. We ask that as we sing and as we worship you, that we would remember just how much radical grace and love you showed to us. And that you would reveal to us how we can share that with others. In your name we pray. Amen.